0: Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Yeti!
1: Yeti! Yeti! Yeti.
0: This week we talk Yeti. Yeti. Bigfoot, the abominable snowman, Gowie, and Sasquatch occupy a special place in our imagination. As proof, Animal Planet devoted a full 100 episodes to their series, Finding Bigfoot. Is Bigfoot out there? From Alaska. Sasquatches do exist. To
1: Oregon. I definitely believe she saw something.
0: To Florida. I got something coming at me on the therm right now. Each week, this expert team of true believers. I've been tracking Sasquatches for 25 years. Fans out across America. We've devoted our lives to this and uncovers evidence. These are the best prints I've seen in my life. Of this elusive legend. Then, just a few weeks ago, I heard this startling news.
1: Long live the legend of the Yeti. A tweet from the Indian Army has gone viral as they claim that they've spotted a footprint from the elusive Yeti. The footprints were reportedly found in the snow near Mount Makalu base camp on April 9th and measured Three feet by 15 inches. The Army said the evidence has been handed over to experts for scientific evaluation.
0: As luck would have it, I happen to know the world's foremost Yeti expert, Dr. Daniel Taylor, whose most recent book is Yeti, The Ecology of a Mystery, published by the prestigious Oxford University Press. Daniel's no ordinary Yeti expert, he's legit. Daniel's been knighted by the King of Nepal decorated with the Order of the Golden Ark by the Prince of the Netherlands, and awarded the first Honorary Professorship of Quantitative Ecology from the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Daniel received his doctorate and master's in education from Harvard and his bachelor's from Johns Hopkins University. And more than that, Daniel's one of my heroes. I've known him for more than 25 years, and his creativity, drive, and curiosity never cease to amaze me. He's helped create some of the most important and largest national parks on the planet. He founded Future Generations University to help people learn community-scale development by actually doing it. He's built and crashed his own plane. And he never stops innovating, establishing with the Chinese government and 80 universities the Green Long March. He also created a program of mosque-based schools in Afghanistan. Daniel co-founded the Mountain Institute in 1972 And when I met him, we worked together to protect snow leopard habitat. I was 29 and my boss at the International Fund for Animal Welfare, Brian Davies, asked if I could go to Tibet to see how Daniel's project was doing. Even though my son Marcus had just been born, I just couldn't say no. Sorry, Alex. I sit down with Daniel and pick up the trail from that adventure all those years ago. It was an amazing trip to like the rooftop of the world i remember the first night i stayed in this house made entirely of cardboard that's right what was it was like a hotel
1: yeah it was a quick built
0: chinese hotel
1: at the border between tibetan the tibetan region of china and nepal and i think they probably built that literally out of cardboard in a few days and of course the question we all were asking is what happens if the cardboard catches on fire because this house is over a cliff (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. And then I remember like we were at some pass and this like 1970s Toyota Land Cruiser and your dad, who was probably like in his 80s at the time, was like, I know how to fix the vehicle. And he came out with a paperclip and was like fiddling under the car and, and literally fixed the car with a paperclip.
1: Well, we all had to do that growing up as a boy in India because we had Jeeps and there were no Jeeps in India. Um, and so we had to make our own parts.
0: So you spent some of your childhood in India. Your grandparents were medical missionaries.
1: Right. They went to India before the First World War and uh, provided primary health care those days there weren't any cars so that they uh, w- went every week to a new village in the jungle because india at that time had one fifth the population it does now there was a lot of jungle i then went to india in 1947 uh, just before indian independence and began tramping around in the jungle i was two at the time and so i grew up there and uh, then it was at age 11 that i I uh, first met the Yeti and began searching out the back door for where the Yeti might be around the house.
0: Right. Did you say Yeti?
1: I said the Yeti, um, the abominable snowman. But we had all sorts of great wildlife in those days because we lived right where the Ganges River came out of the Himalayas. It's a very lush part of the Indian jungle. And so tigers, leopards, snakes, all that good stuff. In the morning, we'd have to shake our shoes to get the scorpions
0: out before you put your foot in it. So what is the legend of the Yeti?
1: That's the important question, really, Jared, because the Yeti fulfills, I think, in our mythology of the wild, a place very similar to what angels fulfill in religious life. These are beings that are half human, half something else, Uh, in the case of an angel, half divine. And there's a means of our connecting to another world. And the Yeti, to my view, after having spent now uh, 68 years studying it uh, in various forms is very similar to the Bigfoot because we need some sort of intermediary. So in Russia, they have a Yeti. Mozart writes about a Yeti. He calls it the Birdman in the Magic Flute. Uh, and so throughout literature, throughout cultures, we have these half-people, half-wilds. And the Sherpa people have the Yeti.
0: So you're traipsing around the jungle. You've got your missionary grandparents and you're out in the jungle like how did it even enter your vocabulary that you were going to be looking for the yeti
1: well at age 11 it was the monsoon was raging and i see on the front page of the newspaper in india a footprint and so i pick up the newspaper and it's an interesting footprint i've seen lots of wild animal footprints by that time growing up and they said the footprint there was an explanation from the primate curator at the British Museum. And he said, oh, this is definitely the Lungur monkey. And it's left its footprints and a little bit of snow melt. And that's what these prints are. Well, I knew Lungur monkeys. They stole my toys. Uh, They ran around on the roof of the house. And I knew for sure at 11 years of age that the curator at the famous British Museum was wrong. And I said, but I knew something was there. And this is the important thing. A footprint is something real. So there's something real that makes a footprint. So because my father was a scientist, grandparents were medical people, we were coming to these things not as myths, but if there's a footprint, what is the real cause and the real maker of that footprint? So it became a quest and by 1983 i was able to explain it but by that time i would found my own set of footprints several times and been studying them and i have a huge library of all the mysterious footprints and plaster casts and the yeti has been interesting
0: so with villagers and sherpas they would say these footprints are huge and they can't belong to anything that we've seen before and what distinguished for people the idea that it would be a Yeti footprint?
1: Well, there are three Yetis. So we're going to have to take apart each one. And there is one Yeti that makes footprints. Now, the Yeti that the Sherpa people talk about is a legend the way Rumpelstiltskin is or Santa Claus or some of these legends that most people believe in the way we believe in a Santa Claus, but we also know that it's a mythical representation of Father Christmas, happiness at Christmas, and all the other overlays, or the way a Hindu god might be. There's a Hindu god called Hanuman, which has got supernatural abilities. And it was is that really a monkey? No, but it's a representation of an idea. So that's a second yeti. The first one is the footprint. And then there's a third yeti, which is this hunger that I was alluding to earlier, that people have to try to connect to the wild. And it's why I believe in the yeti, even though I have explained the footprint as being another animal, because I want a connection between me and the wild, some sort of human connection. And as we enter this new age of the Anthropocene, when all of the planet has been reshaped by human actions, It's very interesting to me that if you do a Google search, you'll find three times the number of Yeti sightings now that we had reported uh, in 1980. And we have more Bigfoot sightings now than we had 20 years ago. So why are we finding more of these sightings? I think it's because of this hunger inside of us. We need this Yeti, this connection to the wild.
0: So recently, like in the last two weeks... There was a Yeti sighting by the Indian army, and every time that there's a Yeti discovered, people phone you. You're like the world Yeti expert.
1: Yeah, Yeah. if you look up Yeti uh, on Wikipedia, you'll see that my explanation is generally credited, uh, and my books are are selling very well, but they answer and develop all these myths. But the Indian Army one was really interesting. They were in the Makalu-Barun National Park in Nepal. is the, the fifth highest mountain. It's immediately east of Mount Everest. It's actually part of the Mount Everest Massif. It includes four of the world's six highest peaks. Makalu's the fifth. And it happens that the national park they were in, I was the one who led in the creating of that national park after I discovered the Yeti. The Indian Army came down off the mountain and they found these gargantuan footprints, 35 inches long. And so immediately, 35-inch footprints, they said, oh, we found the Yeti, and they released it. Well, when have we ever had a living being on this planet that had 35-inch footprints? It was the last time was when we had the dinosaurs walking around.
0: I think Shaq O'Neal may have had 35. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I'm not sure how big LeBron James's footprints are, but they could be that big,
1: yeah. <laughs> Actually, they're only size 18. <laughs> We're talking about something three times bigger, maybe at least twice as big. Anyhow, the last time we had dinosaurs walking on this planet was quite some time ago. So to find 35-inch footprints... Not only does it suggest one animal, but if you have one animal, it means a population. Well, they're not dinosaurs in the Makalu National Park. I happen to know that very well because I founded the park and I've surveyed all the boundaries and I would have run into this population of dinosaurs. Anyhow, they have a picture of this footprint uh, that the Indian Army took. And I took a look at that. I know the site. I know that part of the valley very well. I recognize the the hill that it's on. Well, about 18 years ago, I was about five miles away from that spot, and I found very large footprints also in the snow. Well, the important thing about Yeti footprints is that when you find them, you follow the trail. You don't just stick with the Yeti. One footprint and photograph it. So when I followed these footprints, it went maybe half a mile and it went into the forest and then it sort of went out of the sunlight and into the shade and you could see much more clearly what was going on. It was a mama bear with a little baby cub and following it. And, and you know, if you've watched cubs trying to run after their mother, they don't just run, they sort of hop like a rabbit. And as they go up and down, they, all four footprints are going to come right down, boom, and make a big print right on top of the mom's prints. And so you get that 35-inch print. And a bunch of Indian papers and radio shows were calling me up. And the problem is I'm, I'm sort of challenging the veracity of the Indian Army. And um, that's not a good thing to do.
0: So what's the weirdest call you've ever received about Yeti confirmation?
1: I got a call from the uh, Guardian newspaper and said that Stormy Daniels just had released her new book, or it was about to come out, and they had an advanced copy, and uh, there was some references in there to the Yeti and President Trump, and they asked whether I would comment, and then I said, if we're going to do this interview, you're going to introduce me as a scientist, and that I have published from a reputable press, Oxford University Press, which is a peer-reviewed press. And I am certainly not going to comment on President Trump unless I'm so introduced, because I can sense that this interview is going to go perhaps in a strange place. Well, if you read this passage out of Stormy Daniels' account, she describes watching Donald Trump getting undressed and about to get into bed with her. And he says his pubes are like yeti fur, now, would Dr. Taylor, would you please tell us what yeti fur is like? So let's be very clear that I'm talking about yeti hair. And I said, in this instance, there are going to be three types of yeti hair. There is one yeti hair of the animal that makes the mysterious footprints. Okay? There is another, which is the yeti hair of fake yeti pelts that we've explained to be other animals. And then there's a third Yeti here, which is the stuffed animal that Walt Disney sells. But the real animal, Yeti, is a black bear. And so that is a bristly hair. But we're talking about bears now. We're not talking about human beings or the president. I know nothing about
0: that. How did you discover that the Yeti was, in fact, a black bear? And then how did that evolve into you creating some of the world's largest natural parks?
1: Well, Jared, as you know, you've been there. You've seen the parks. And they're really some of the most magnificent places on Earth. I kept searching for this animal because there was definitely going to be an animal. Um, So I knew that there was some explanation there. And the explanation that it was a bear had been first advanced in a serious scientific way in the 1930s by a British mountaineer by the name of Evans. But it had been substantially also repeated by several other people who had found prints alleged to be yetis, and they had followed him and said it was a bear. But the big question is, was the famous footprint from 1951 that was taken by Eric Shipton, what was that? Because it did not appear as though that was a bear. It appears very hominoid-like. And so there remained this mystery.
0: Here's a clip from National Geographic's Yeti special on those first footprints.
1: It was late in the afternoon on November the 8th 1951 and Shipton and the expedition's doctor Michael Ward were working on a glacier a couple of miles from here and then suddenly they came across a set of huge footprints that went away from them down the glacier and it left them completely mystified. Were all footprints bears, or was there something else out there? And it's very conceivable. There are vast valleys, unsettled, especially in the 1950s, and only until the 1970s did really most of the Himalayas start to get settled. So it happened that when I was in school, in graduate school, I got to know the then Crown prince of Nepal, and he also was very interested in this question. Yeti is actually a Sherpa word, that the mountaineers, especially British mountaineers, brought back, especially after 1951. There were a variety of names used before that, like Metokangmi, when the first British accounts came back in 1921. Anyway, when the British started using the word Yeti in England and around then the rest of the world in English, Yeti then has entered the Nepali language. But it is actually a Sherpa word that went to England. So in 1983, though, at the advice of the then king of Nepal, he said, well, if it's any place in Nepal, it's going to be in the Barun Valley. So I went into the Barun, and I described it in my book, Yeti, the Ecology of a Mystery. And you you brought your
0: two-year-old son, Jesse? Yeah, I took my two-year-old son and my wife. Because that, would that be safe
1: to do? Well, I think it's as safe as driving on 101 here in California with all the crazy drivers you have. Yeah, there's some uncertainties, but um, I grew up in the jungle, and uh, so I feel pretty comfortable with that. And it's also a good way to raise your kids. You know, they start to learn about the wild. So anyhow, we lived in the jungle for a couple of weeks, and uh, one day I found a bunch of Yeti footprints in the snow, and I got pretty excited and followed them, and they were pretty dramatic, and they were sort of human-like, like like the Shipton prints. and so I came back with photographs, and I asked one of the village hunters, and he said, oh, that's a tree bear. Rukbalu is the Nepali name for it, and I said, well, what's a Rukbalu? Balu is the word for bear. He said, well, we have two types of bears here. We have Rukbalus and Buibalus, and others tree bears and ground bears, I said, well, huh, huh? I mean, you know, there's only one bear here in this jungle. We all know it's the Himalayan black bear. He says, no, we have two bears. And this is a very, very talented hunter. And so I then got fascinated. I said, well, maybe there's a new species of bear. And that explains these mysterious footprints. And so I bought some skulls because they had skulls in the village, and uh, then I got a permit to bring them back and check them out at the Smithsonian Institution, and they were Himalayan Asiatic black bear, what we call now Ursus Arctus Tibetanus, and that took me several years. And that was a lot of fun, and there's a lot of adventures in skulls, finding skulls, losing skulls, and uh, slides, and all that sort of stuff. But it quickly became clear to me that I had a choice to make. At the suggestion of His Majesty and other friends, Um, They said, well, the important thing is the the habitat. Well, I didn't have any money. I'm not the World Wildlife Fund. So how do you create a national park if you don't have any money? So we came up with an idea, which is where you got involved, Jared, which was to have the people manage the park rather than hiring wardens, which is the Yellowstone model. And so around Mount Everest, we created first on the Nepal side, the Mahalbarun National Park, just east of Everest, and then we went into Tibet which at that time had no national parks and no protected areas. We created a very large park on the Chinese-Tibetan side. Tibet is a province of China, and that was very successful. And at that time, the governor of Tibet was Hu Jintao, who later became president of China. And he got very interested in this idea. Later on, as president of China, really started to push the environmental agenda, But um, my friendship with him began early on, and we then ran a lot of environmental programs in China, such as the Green Long March, which we did with 80 Chinese universities and 10,000 students, and it became the largest youth environmental movement in China for five years. But we also started creating national parks and nature preserves. And ultimately, I directly was involved in seven in Tibet. And one of those was four great rivers that you were involved with, Jared. And that's the headwaters of the Yangtze, the Mekong, the Salween, and the Brahmaputra rivers. The Brahmaputra gorge is four times deeper than the Grand Canyon in this country. And that park's the size of Washington state, 40 million acres.
0: At that time, habitat protection wasn't really in vogue. So it was kind of a, a big deal for him to work with you on this concept.
1: Well, first of all, This is The king of Nepal was a remarkably insightful person about the environment. King Burindra, he was later assassinated by his son, uh, the crown prince, and killed seven members of the royal family in a massacre in 2001. But this was in 1983, 80 to 85, and the national park movement was just starting worldwide at that time. But everybody was following basically the Yellowstone model, which is you create a perimeter... You have to protect it. It takes a lot of money. And the most important thing is to keep people out. And our idea was, no, the most important thing is to involve people.
0: Tell us a little bit about just what you discovered when you looked at the park ranger model, where they came from, how they were paid, just those kind of issues.
1: Well, you look at the American park rangers, and their uniform makes it pretty clear they were the U.S. cavalry. And the U.S. cavalry in the late 19th century... Didn't have any work to do. They had already shot out the Native Americans and uh, dominated the West. And so they had employment problems. So when our national parks were created, the cavalry became essentially the National Park Service. Basically, they took the model, the, the military force that we had in the West, and they gave it a new job, which was managing the perimeter. But then the problem becomes okay, we don't have the Native Americans anymore. We've locked them up in their own parks and we call them reservations. And we've created these other parks, but then the there's a confrontation with the ranchers and the farmers who are outside the parks. And so there it becomes the tradition in this country and in many and certainly in Africa and uh, other parts of the world, where the parks become into conflict with the communities. And so you have in the middle of the night, you have people invading the parks, killing the animals with this crisis in Africa right now with rhinos and elephants. so, The idea that people are the stewards and people are vested in taking care of it. Let's let's come back to the Chinese situation. When we started in Tibet, there was zero protection. Today, there's 54% of the Tibetan region is protected. And what we did was we took an idea which was new in the 80s, which had been talked about in the literature called biosphere reserves. And we did the first biosphere reserves in Asia, now, a biosphere reserve has a strict conservation area, which is like our national park. Then it has a buffer zone where it can be used, and then it has a multiple-use zone, which is more like our national forest model in the United States. Well, we took that and we created six zones in a biosphere reserve, not three. And they include farms, they include cities, they even include mining And in each of those areas, there is a conservation management plan so that it supports the larger landscape. And this allows the creation of these large areas, such as we mentioned with Four Great Rivers, which is 40 million acres. Now, once you start to get half of the land of an area under conservation management, as we have now in Tibet, which is very fragile land because it's a high altitudes, in this case it's got one-third less oxygen than sea level, once you get that level of landscape being protected, you've begun to get an answer for the planet. And that's what interests me. And I think that the much more interesting story than Yellowstone is the extraordinary conservation project called the Yukon to Yellowstone, which is a joint U.S. Canadian project that now runs from south of the Yellowstone, way up into the Yukon. It's the largest contiguous protected area on the planet, and it has been carefully built by a partnership of conservation activists. So it isn't just one NGO, one non-governmental unit, one government. You have two governments in this case. We've got multiple park services. We've got ranchers. We've got people who are getting conservation easements. And so the grizzly bear, for instance, now has a secure corridor that that goes for um, 2,800 miles. And other animals have this corridor so that in climate change, species can move and adapt. Uh, we have to start considering the whole earth as a conservation area. And we have examples in the work that we've done in the Himalaya. We've essentially protected the headwaters for almost all the Asian rivers, the Indus, the Ganges, the Yellow, the the Yangtze. And that's the beginning when you start to protect the headwaters. But you've got to take it all the way
0: down to the sea and the estuaries. One of the projects that you had in Chungmalunga, the park around Everest, you worked out how much the rangers were getting paid. You worked out that the rangers generally weren't from that location. They were brought in from somewhere else. And then you gave back-end benefits. You asked the community what they cared about.
1: You're absolutely right. We did a survey and asked everybody in the community what they wanted and their priorities. And it turned out that the number one thing that people wanted was reliable energy source. It's high altitude. The number two thing they wanted was roads because it was isolated. Tibet was at that time, you know, you had to ride a donkey. And the third thing that they wanted was health care so that we started by creating village health workers. We called them pendabas, which is somebody from the village who we train in basic health care. And then that person gets involved in the village, supports them. Then by having some sheep or something that the village is managing for that person and the person then can work, the pendaba can work full time in providing village health services. And once the health starts to get under control, then we train them in reforestation. And at that time, trees weren't growing at Thirteen and 14,000 feet. But we developed some techniques whereby trees could grow. So every community had some trees growing around it. They were growing the trees because they went up there and cut the leaves off to feed their animals in the wintertime. So their local creativity was um, essentially a hay field that was growing vertically on the tree. So once you start to work with people like that and listen to their needs then you can come up in a discussion with appropriate management plans. And this is very different than sitting down in an office in Washington, D.C. or here in Sacramento and designing a park for people. But to get out there and design a park with people, you come up with not only different designs but varying designs. So that in one area you do something, in another area you do something else. And management by zones is what then allows the ecology of the area to be respected in a way that's appropriate to each area.
0: I remember you calling me, saying, Jared, this bridge had blown up and that the villagers were responsible.
1: Yep. There was um, logging that was going on, and uh, the villagers saw that their forest was being taken away. And so they waited until the trucks were all loaded down with timbers, And then they destroyed the bridge and uh, the Chinese army was caught with its pants down because the Chinese army trucks filled with the timbers. It was pretty embarrassing.
0: It just shows that that they really, really cared about the Penderburs and the health care they were getting and they felt like it was in jeopardy.
1: So the key point is that you need to get people's
0: participation to save the planet. Daniel, you spent most of your life living on the top of a mountain in rural West Virginia. What's it like being an environmentalist in a red coal producing state?
1: Well, most of my neighbors would call themselves environmentalists because the question is how are you defining it? Now, politically, we may be in a different spot. But it starts with a love for the land. And I think the most important feature, and why I would call them environmentalists, is they will not sell their land. They do not see their land as something to make money off of. They see their land as something to love. That, I think, is a very good definition of being an environmentalist, is if you love the land and you're taking care of it the best you can. So they may be really poor, but that land has been in the family for four generations. They love their land, they're not going to sell it. So that's why I say they would call themselves environmentalists, and and the reason is because they care as much about their land as any environmental activist who otherwise just comes out and rides a mountain bike around the land. I think that we have to start looking at things in circles. I mean, I think that this is really important. There is no cause and effect in this world that doesn't come back to you. And the question is, when these things come back, how do we make it better? So I think that one of the exciting things for me is to see young people like scouts, like my grandchild, taking care of the environment. They're not throwing garbage out the window of the car the way we used to. They are recycling their supplies. They're thinking about their carbon footprints. There's a real similarity between a Yeti's footprint and a carbon footprint. And I guess that's the way I'll come back to it, because the carbon footprint is the footprint that we humans have left on the Earth. And the Yeti's footprint is a projection of the human footprint that we thought was the wild, but actually what we've seen is the Yeti's footprint is ourselves.
0: A huge thank you to my friend, mentor and true Renaissance man, Daniel Taylor, for continuing to inspire me every single time we meet. I'd strongly recommend going to future.edu to learn more about Future Generations University and how they can help expand your view of the world. And finally, here's a clip from Animal Planet's Finding Bigfoot, on the sounds made by the Yeti's American cousin, Sasquatch. One of the more common vocalizations is often described as a high-pitched scream, like a woman being murdered in the woods. Um, Sometimes they're long and drawn out, sometimes they're short, like this. (laughs) If you take away one thing from this week's episode, it's that If you're in the woods and hear a noise like the one we just heard, it's very likely someone is getting murdered. So please don't call Dr. Daniel Taylor. Instead, dial 911. Next week, we talk with French environmentalists about yellow jackets, macron, and fromage. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld. Remember that myths are often more powerful than reality.